When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Anusha Kellyan and I'm joined by my colleagues Stephen Bush and Alva Ray to discuss the latest changes to the lockdown in England and you ask us, who would be your dream Prime Minister and what would the new party be called? So Boris Johnson addressed the nation in a speech on Sunday evening that had been much anticipated on changing some of the lockdown rules in England. So the immediate changes, if you're in England, that you're likely to notice straight away this week at some point are the encouragement to go out to exercise, not just daily, but an unlimited amount. You can sit down in parks. That's been sort of said explicitly now. You can go for drives to other destinations. You can play sports with people from your household outside and builders and manufacturing workers and other people who do non-key worker jobs that are impossible to do from home have been encouraged to return to work and that's if they weren't already working because of course they never actually told the construction firms not not to work in England as part of the lockdown and then there were some future plans announced as well to reopen primary schools for some year groups in June and some parts of the hospitality sector in July if the virus threat is under a certain amount of control and they've introduced this new five-tier threat system which sort of amounts to what the government's previous standards were before you know things like keeping the R number well below one making sure the NHS was below full capacity, for example. So those are the main changes. And actually, you know, I've written a piece for the New Statesman website today. So for listeners' sake, the morning after Boris Johnson's speech, sort of saying why some of these, most of these things aren't actual legal changes. They're just sort of changes in the guidance and emphasis in the government advice, because most of these things you were allowed to do before and police had been advised to allow us to do beforehand. So that suggests that really the pro-lockdown voices in government are winning the debate so far. But there have been areas of contention, haven't there? So there's been this sort of perceived lack of clarity from the government, because Johnson made this statement, which was very brief, before the government was due to publish a sort of blueprint of the actual details of these changes. And there's also uncertainty for for people's day-to-day lives, you know, whether that's about socialising with people from outside of your household or how exactly these workers are supposed to go back to work while avoiding using public transport or or staying safe, how employers are supposed to sort of prepare for that so quickly. And also there was, of course, which sums up all of this, the change of the slogan from stay at home to stay alert. And actually the other devolved nations have stuck to the stay at home slogan as well. So that's added to the sort of level of confusion. So what do you two think? Do you think it's fair to say that the government has been unclear? Yes, 
I mean, I think it has been a comms disaster, basically. There's the the slightly unavoidable aspect of it, which is that a lot of ideas around the lifting of lockdown were briefed to newspapers in the hope that they would become the policy, but they didn't become the policy. But then there was, you know, the problem of releasing the new slogan the morning before or like on the morning of the speech that would be at 7pm that evening and then a 20-hour delay after the speech in which the guidance would be published, which means that we've had several broadcast rounds from government figures in which they aren't able to explain the the new guidance or the new position and then the stay alert slogan which has been roundly mocked on twitter which obviously is not it's not real life and it's not the whole general public but i mean it gives a snapshot of of how unclear people have found it but it's just i think for me it just encapsulates the way ultimately there's no clear strategy behind the slogan and you can't find a couple of words to summarize your approach if there's no cohesive strategy underneath it because it's a I mean basically lockdown hasn't really changed as you were saying Anush already it was stay at home except under certain conditions except you know one being exercise and two being going to work they've like changed how often we can go out to exercise but that it hasn't changed on the level of the legal guidance and really like the guidance around work hasn't really changed much either. It's a shift of emphasis. So already there were lots of people who were going out to work in unsafe conditions. And now the emphasis is just that those people should be doing more of that. So areas of manufacturing and construction that had closed because they couldn't maintain social distancing are being told to go back to work. It seems all wrong to me. Like if you want to get people to go back to work, you need to provide them with the conditions to help them go back to work. Like why didn't we have you know, just a clear government statement maybe a week ago saying, you know, we're working on improving conditions to make sure that people can get to work. We're working on on cycling infrastructure. We're give, we're doing this, you know, why don't we have like a graphic of how you can social distance on a bus? Why don't you, we have very, very clear guidance for how people can social distance in the manufacturing industry, in a factory, on a construction site. The urge to go back to work has happened before the things are in place to enable people to do that safely. So I guess I'm slightly more, I mean, sympathetic feels like the wrong way of putting it, right? But so I'm basically going to start, start from, start backwards as it were, which is the reason why I think it is a positive thing to try and move away from protect the NHS is because a worryingly large number of people have opted to not go to their GPs in order to help save NHS resources. And because they are frightened of of getting COVID-19 if they go into hospital. And I think that you have to change something to try and unblock that. The problem, as, as Alva says, is that the reason why the message is muddled is because the government is divided about whether or about what it wants to prioritise. I think actually, and I don't think it's a, I don't think it's coincidental that in France they have also switched to a stay alert message because they also have a situation where their original plan was, oh, we think we can reopen schools. Oh, it now turns out there are lots of more logistical difficulties than we even thought there were. So now we're not sure if that timetable is going to be pushed back. Our PPE procurement is not what we would have liked it to be, and you have similar pressures here. But added to that, of course, you know Macron genuinely is i mean we talk about having a presidential system metaphorically they literally have a presidential system he leads a party which is sustained by him and his personal following and it is as of yet unclear 
if on Marsh will survive as a serious movement after him. So all of that stuff is slightly easier, but you again have these kind of difficult decision points to adjudicate around, of which the kind of biggest in, in our context here is this kind of what I suspect is a kind of pitch rolling for the furlough to be tapered off for the two industries he name checked, manufacturing and construction. I do think, yeah, I think in some ways, right, the Twitter stuff as Albert says doesn't matter. I think in, in that YouGov poll showing that 68% of people totally didn't understand what the slogan meant. Of course they don't understand what the slogan meant because the slogan is trying to communicate six very important messages which the government hasn't decided or perhaps can't decide, right? Perhaps actually you, you have to look at those six messages and go, they're all important, you're stuck with them. So you end up with the you know, something which a slogan can never be load-bearing for. And I think that is kind of, yeah, it's, it's of the essence of, you know, Tony Blair's point about how, you know, ultimately good policy makes good communications. Yeah, that is the main reason for, for the leaks, as is almost always the case, I think, is that mostly people are more willing to talk to you if they feel their side is losing the argument internally, because people hope that if they leak about it, it makes it true, as Alva says. So I think that's why it's been tricky. Yes. And sort of one of the most stark examples of that were, were some front pages last week sort of suggesting that we'd be back in the pub with our friends sometime soon. So I can see why. I mean, there were pubs in my area that were holding out hope that that was going to be the substance of some of Boris Johnson's announcements on Sunday evening. So I do think that although we know how that kind of briefing stuff works behind the scenes, it is it can come across as incredibly confusing to, to just the general public and the business owners who have so much of a stake in this. But I, I, I've thought slightly differently about the slogan and perhaps, I don't know why, but maybe it, it might have been because I'd had quite a bit of time off and um, I was away, you know, with my head out of the day-to-day of this. But I thought the stay alert slogan wasn't as dreadful as everyone was making out. I completely buy that it's unclear and the idea of it is is to sort of cover all manner of different, sometimes contradictory things that the government wants to make sure that people start doing again. But is that not sort of the point? So, you know, if you're this conservative government in this predicament, and I'm not defending this policy, but surely you want people to start just sort of making some decisions on their own and and sort of using their common sense. So stay alert can mean all manner of things to, to different people. And if it means that otherwise healthy young people who are perhaps slowly descending into mental health crises alone at home, go and see their friends then that's probably more helpful. But you don't really want to be the ones to tell people to do that. Similarly, with people going back to work when they can't work from home, for example, more helpful for for the economy and potentially for them if if they can stay safe at work, then you kind of want them to do that. But you don't really want to be the one to to say it explicitly. So I I got the impression that the vagueness was almost intentional because it meant that people could, could read into it what they want and start making their own decisions. I'm not saying that's the safest thing for the government to do, but I thought it was quite clever if that's the government's intention. You see, it's interesting, Anush, because I actually can't tell if that was the intention of the of the new announcement or not by passing the buck on to individuals and hoping that they use their common sense in all manner of ways with negotiating this lockdown moving forward because my sort of expectation from the announcement was really that it's muddled because you want people to feel like it is still unsafe and so they should stay at home but you simultaneously want the people who work in industries where they can't stay at home to work to feel like it's safe enough that they can go back to work and you're kind of targeting different people with different messages 
in a way that will feel quite unfair for a lot of people. And so then there's there's a fundamental fudge there. But I feel like, I mean, I have heard other people make make that point that you made, Anush, but I can't really tell if it is about actually wanting to imply a greater leniency around people sneaking off to see their friends or stretching the rules in a way that they deem to be okay. Yeah, and I suppose there is the reality that both extremes are unsafe, aren't they? So being reckless and going out and not so social distancing and seeing more people than you really have to is obviously dangerous in the time of a virus that's spreading across the country. But at the same time, as Stephen said about people not going to the doctors when they need to or avoiding hospital and all the other sort of social implications of having to stay at home all the time is also dangerous. And you did that very good report on the excess deaths. And we we don't know, you know, for sure what's behind those excess non-COVID-19 deaths but we know that the shutdown has had has has caused all sorts of collateral damage. Yeah I guess I, I, I'm firmly team Alvar on this one and my assumption with almost all of the things the government has communicated badly other than the ones which you can just straightforwardly just like write off as process incompetence like saying oh journalists won't be allowed to ask questions oh no we, we meant they will be or the kind of like Dominic Raab's very ill-briefed media appearance, right? So just kind of ignore the competent stuff for a second. All of the kind of stuff where you go, what does that mean, are where explicitly setting out the thinking is politically awkward and would make you sound incredibly callous to, slash is incredibly callous, depending on your perspective, right, to say out loud, or just involves things which is slightly embarrassing for the Prime Minister to have to say. Like the whole, why can't I go see my parents in their garden, but I can in, in the park? Ultimately, because it's unlikely that you're going to use the loo in a gar- in a public park in a way that like causes you to shed viral load in your parents' household. Whereas if you visit someone at home, there's a non-trivial chance that you will do that. Or as you say, right, this thing where essentially the government wants us to be concerned enough for us to continue socially distancing, not so concerned that people who can't socially distance won't go into work. And crucially, for people who aren't in the second group, not to think that people in that in the second group are being made to take unnecessary risks. And I just think when you put all of those imperatives together, of course, you end up with a confused message. And I suppose one, one of my overriding feelings yesterday watching it was, I think it, the speech seemed clearer on paper than it was when it was delivered loud, because ultimately, people can't concentrate for 12 minutes. And it was quite hard. And amidst all the kind of guff, it was hard to see what the clear new changes were and what was what was just sort of placating noises but I just had this feeling that it needed to be much much shorter and to go into much more detail on the big policy change or or the big change for in people's lives which would be them going back to work it should have been a whole speech about that with like much more detail on how people can do that and how they'll be supported to do that as well as bringing the guidance out immediately afterwards I just think there's something, it was such an error to give the encouragement without taking seriously how much that would worry people or how many questions they would have around that, as well as all the other confusion around like whether you can meet up with your family or whether there are other tweaks to the lockdown because you can exercise more. I think that it should have been much more focused on the nature of work as we move forward. Yeah, there was noticeably no mention of sort of the job security schemes and and social security as well, which worried me. Yeah, it's odd because in terms of people going back to work and social security, 
the thing I think has been interesting about the past couple of weeks is I think neither Labour nor the Conservatives have fully absorbed how bad the underlying economic picture is. Probably because actually like the biggest recession since 1709 is such a bad picture and it's like a hyper object and you kind of like, you sort of go like, oh, so that's going to be like the financial crisis, right? Also, yeah, like it, it, it's, it's hard to sort of conceptualise it because it's not actually certain to me. I think it feels pretty likely from this and what will happen at the end of June is the furlough will continue for industries which have been shut and it will continue for some industries which need greater support but it will be tapered off for manufacturing and construction and maybe some other sectors that they would like to resume work and trading. But I don't think it feels all that likely that manufacturing and construction will resume work and trading at the same rate because the lockdown has caused a major hit to consumption and demand. This is the thing is, I think there's a very real possibility that what will happen is that June is kind of the point when Westminster kind of collectively goes from the economy's in suspension to, oh, the economy's actually in quite a bit of trouble as a result of the necessary measures we've taken to fight the virus. Yeah, exactly. And and like you, you've written, Stephen, I do think that that sort of haves and the haves nots but goes out and the goes out nots divide is going to become more and more poignant because I mean I just when I heard Boris Johnson say construction workers and manufacturing workers can go back to work but try and avoid public transport maybe go on your bike or 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 walk to work I just thought this is a man saying something where he he has absolutely no idea of how how certain people's working lives are if you work in construction, the nature of that business is that you move from site to site, don't you? So sometimes you might be able to, if you're lucky, walk or cycle to work. But most of the time, you're, you're going to have to travel further. And if you're in a city, then the likelihood is that the only way that you have to travel there is by public transport. And equally, you know, if you're a builder or an electrician or, or, or whoever, then you're going to have a lot of stuff to carry. So you're not going to be cycling there. I just thought that was a very tone deaf moment. Yeah, and the whole thing, I mean, so on the issue of how people travel to work, the um, Mail on Sunday's Harry Cole shared some data around this. And I think in the whole of the UK, I think it is actually still quite a small proportion of people who use public transport to get into work. I think that on bus and rail, it's only about 17%. And outside of cities, a lot of people do drive to work. That's the sort of the overwhelming majority. But as you say, when you think of people, it doesn't apply so much in London, but in other places in the UK, the people who are dependent on public transport are the most economically vulnerable. And the most vulnerable to the virus as well. Exactly. So so even if I'm sure the majority of, of people who work in construction actually do drive there, that would just be my guess given the like the overall figures for that. But it's still mm. it's it's still not insignificant if you're asking some people to go into work but not to not to use public transport without providing more policy solutions around what that actually looks like. I think just diving into the detail is so important there in so many different ways. And also just the thing that's been annoying me really since the start of it was that the way that like lots of people in manufacturing and construction have been working this whole time because the government didn't really outline clear guidance on whether certain sectors should close or not. And it was all entirely at the discretion of individual employers. And it was only when 
Andrew Percy, a Tory MP, asked Jacob Rees-Mogg about it in the Commons that I realised it was the case that there were lots of factory workers and people in construction who just had to continue work as normal without social distancing and that the government guidelines completely accommodated that. And obviously now that it's becoming more widespread and we're depending on a policy like that to get the economy up and moving more people are talking about it but I just keep thinking of the people who've been working this way the whole time and I mean in theory by law you have rights to leave a a work environment that you think is unsafe but ultimately people still feel like they have to go to work in unsafe conditions and it isn't just key workers. Yeah I mean I guess the interesting thing though right in terms of who is being urged to go to work is actually they're not in the bottom of the income distribution because broadly if you're in the bottom of the income distribution you work in four industries restaurants pubs hotels closed supermarkets corner shops etc open delivery drivers booming business unfortunately not for you but you know a booming business a booming business which is hiring more staff so The interesting thing about this politically, I think, is that as well as the kind of social justice implication, which is going to annoy, you know, the three of us and people like us, right? This is broadly the Tory party asking a chunk of its electoral coalition to take risks that the type of voter who we associate with the Tories, but who largely did defect in 2017 and 2019 and hasn't gone back, is getting to stay home. And as well as that being something I'm kind of uncomfortable with in terms of the risk that those people are being asked to take, I am just intrigued, right, about what the political consequences of that are. To subscribe to The New Statesman for a digital or print subscription or both, go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe. You can get 12 weeks for £12. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And now's the time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. It's going to be so weird doing that as a a duo in the kind of, in the interim period between between Patrick going off to the Murdoch Death Star and whoever it is we... It's good because we have a sort of high soprano and low bass. (laughs) (laughs) What was Patrick? A reluctant tenor. Patrick didn't do it or did it kind of, you know... That's why he had to go. So the question this week, if you were building a new party, what would you call it and who would be the leader? Ooh. What would you say, Stephen? So for the leader, I, I, I'm i umming and ahhing between two, actually a couple of possible candidates. 
I was originally just going to go for the kind of give me Bridget Phillipson or give me death approach. Maybe that could be the name of the party too, right? Seeing as, let's face it, all of the good party <laughs> names have long since been taken. Yeah, it's one of those things I realise actually I find it much harder to pick leader candidates than I do to pick like a front bench. Yeah, no, I'm actually just going to stick with it. I'm just going to go with Bridget Phillipson or give me death. It rolls off the tongue, does what it says on the tin. Although admittedly, maybe death is going to be... <laughs> yeah, death death is, is proved more popular than, than we might have thought. <laughs> also, we'd have a good catalogue of all of her work. That's the, the thing, website, right? You do so. desperately want like um a prime minister who not only you can say is a thinker, but who you can self-promote while talking about their thought. I mean, obviously it doesn't matter because now the politics column is always about COVID. But one of the slight difficulties of the Boris Johnson era is that not having the exhaust of, in a quiet week, being able to go, what is the Prime Minister reading? Which really actually hasn't been something you could do as an exhaust since 2016. <laughs> but there was a, a long period of time when I realised I was quite spoiled because you could always go, hmm, what's the Prime Minister's thought? Hmm, what's this new trend the leader of the opposition is into? Yeah, so that would be nice. That's my preference. Alva, what about you? So my immediate thinking was... Some sort of, you know, like the great middle-aged women of parliament uniting to form their own political movement. Just because I suppose this, that's a, like a frivolous point and a, less, and a less frivolous point, which I suppose is that I think that lots of people my age access their politics through some other kind of activism or or framework. And mine, has def- mine was definitely feminism at university. Like I followed party politics but I always took most of an interest in policy and that kind of thing through a feminist lens. And I think that if you do it properly, a feminist outlook is a very sensible way of arranging your politics in a way that accommodates men and women and gives you a a good set of policy priorities and a good approach to to politics. I mean, even at the moment, thinking about like the issue of financial insecurity and so on, which is going to, I think, be a huge issue in British politics over the coming years because I, so many people in the UK have so few savings. But it's very much a gendered issue, as well as one that intersects with how, with with sort of poverty and and other forms of disadvantage. But yeah, I think that you know a sort of better version of the Women's Equality Party. And the frivolous reason for that is that I have found that since you're joining the New Statesman, some of the most welcoming and helpful politicians have been women across all the parties that there's some like really experienced women who've been very very helpful and and informative and I think they should just you know get together and start their own thing so who'd be leader is this an Emily Thornbury led thing I don't know I think Emily Thornbury's too well known I think you'd really want so I think Eleanor Lang the deputy speaker from the conservatives keen followers of the new statesman will remember that she was the first person I interviewed and she was so nice so she can be in it and I think you know she she lends a certain gravitas she could be leader keep everyone together Meg Hillier chair of the public accounts committee in old hand thinks she'd be very good nice someone like Wendy Chamberlain from the Lib Dems I had a lovely time with her up in St Andrews when she was campaigning to win to take Northeast Fife off the SNP I think them and even and then you know from the left of the Labour Party someone like Belle Ribeiro Addy or someone just you know get all the good feminists together and shake things off a bit 
I like the sound of that. I like mine is so much less comprehensive, but (laughs) I think that literally no one listening to this likes that idea at all. (laughs) But you know, like I think there's probably absolutely no one who likes the politics of all of those people. But they're going to have to learn to live. It would have to be a coup, wouldn't it? It would have to be enforced. (laughs) But the thing is, right? In in some ways, I've ruined the the fun by picking like Bridget Phillipson is, is is too plausible a choice, right? Like. It can't. You can't just be like, I would like the Labour Party, or I would like, you know, a Green Party that you know was more kind of like economically liberal or whatever, right? You you kind of you can't pick something which could plausibly exist. So maybe I'm gonna. I actually have a name, a new name for mine. I basically want like the Conservationists Party, and it could include like Caroline Lucas and all of the like the conservative mps who are like really good on farming and biodiversity but then occasionally say something about borders and it's like how does that <laughs> here and you're like oh no actually that is perfectly normally only my proximity to part of your politics means and i just like <laughs> yeah you know, kind of basically refuse to see the other part yeah and we could just have yeah like sort of stretching from all of those yeah like all of the people in the labor party who are seriously green yeah ed davy could be in it actually and maybe to make myself even more unpopular, Ed Miliband 2.0 could be its Ooh. leader. <laughs> we won't be getting my vote. <laughs> Mine's going to be a joint leadership, joint prime ministership, because we've never had a job share in that position. I think that would be very good for, you know, progressive workplace reasons. So mine's going to be my two favourite runners up, Norman Lamb, the leader that never was and the leader of my heart. And Claire Wright, who didn't win in East Devon in the last election. And they're going to be joint leaders. And the party will be called something like Unsilencing of the Lamb or oh, I love the right it. stuff. Or, <laughs> <laughs> or runners up to win. Gosh, and you'll be their head of comms. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And basically, you know, you can read my various interviews with both of those people to see why um, I like them so much. But they're both very sensible on policy and nice people and, you know, not too sort of ideologically pure, which I sort of favour in candidates. And I enjoyed meeting both of them. So it's nice to have a nice prime minister. Quite right. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Stephen Bush and Alva Ray. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.